From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Problems with the bones, muscles, ligaments, and tendons of the shoulder are common, especially as we age. In fact, almost 8 million people go to the doctor's office for a shoulder problem every year. On today's program, we'll talk about shoulder problems and treatments with a Mayo Clinic expert. It's actually pretty common, and what had happened in the past, people were probably undertreated for it. So actually, the rate of shoulder replacement surgery is growing at three to four times the rate have hip and knee replacements in the United States. So the rate has really increased. Also on the program, we'll learn about treating and preventing osteoporosis. And what causes cellulite, and can you do anything about it? All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. The shoulder. We're finally going to talk about the shoulder. <laughs> it's a shallow ball and socket joint with a, actually a remarkable range of motion. And because the shoulder joint is so mobile, it tends to be more susceptible to injury. Shoulder pain can stem from a lot of different causes, including sprains, strains, tendonitis, or an injury to the rotator cuff, that group of tendons on the top of your shoulder that allow you to move it so far in so many different directions. Conservative treatments such as rest, ice, and physical therapy are sometimes all that's needed to recover. But if your injury is severe and it involves a complete tear of the muscle or tendon, you might need surgery. Here to discuss shoulder problems and what to do about them is Mayo Clinic orthopedic surgeon, Dr. John Sperling. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Sperling. It's great to have you here. Wonderful to be here. Thank you so much. My colleague, Dr. Sperling, good to have you with us. Wonderful, Tom. So, Thank so you. So tell us why it is that the shoulder joint can move so far in so many different directions. That's right, Tom. It's incredible the range of motion the shoulder has compared to other joints in the body, but along with that range of motion comes more susceptibility to injuries, particularly when people perhaps overdo it with activity or sustained falls or things such as that. Most common injuries? Most common injuries are, are partial tears or full thickness tears of the rotator cuff. A very common injury that we see. All right. Now, a lot of people come in and they say, I got a problem with my rotary cuff. It's rotator cuff, right? And, and tell but us what that is. But you know what they mean. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Exactly. It's like my prostrate. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's right. So it is, uh, Tom, the partial or full thickness tears are incredibly common. So getting tearing of your rotator cuff is like getting gray hair, losing your hair, or both as we get older. So an incredibly common problem that we see in folks. And some people tolerate them, and some people it causes significant pain, particularly at night when they try to sleep. A question that I have about that range of motion that we were talking about when we got started, if as you age you don't do enough stretching or strengthening of the shoulder, do you lose that range of motion? People as they age do lose range of motion. It's a great question. So over time, most people do lose some motion in their shoulders. So maintaining flexibility and strengthening your shoulders is important as we all get older. So the rotator cuff, uh, this group of, of tendons on the top of your shoulder, uh, it degenerates with time or it can tear? Correct. So as we get older, they fray. The rotator cuff tendons do fray with aging and time, and they do become more susceptible to injury. There's no question about that. So perhaps a fall that you would take when you're younger, the rotator cuff can sustain that or, or do okay with that. As we get older, the, the tendons do tend to weaken, and they're more susceptible to have a, a full tear. Can the tear ever repair itself? It doesn't. It's interesting. So a rotator cuff tear is like a hole in a pair of pants. It does not heal itself on its own. 
We try to treat these, and particularly in people who may be a little bit older with simple non-operative things at first, medication, injection, physical therapy, but people, if they have continued pain despite that, that's when we think more about operative intervention. Because the rotator cuff is less like a muscle in that way, because can a muscle repair itself? So the rotator cuff is actually the part where the muscle turns into tendon and the tendon inserts into the bone. Okay. So typically what happens is the tendon actually rips off the bone. Oh. So there's a, a, actually a real gap there between the tendon and the bone, and the tendon itself cannot heal itself back to the bone that way, when the, particularly when there's a full tear. And tell us about the surgery. Can you do that through the scope, and how successful is it? It's interesting. It's really come a long way, Tom. So in the past, there were these horror stories of going through shoulder surgery and the pain and, and disability and how long the procedures would take. But most rotator cuff surgeries really are amenable to either an arthroscopic repair or a repair through a small incision. And the surgeries typically take about an hour to do. Many are done as an outpatient or perhaps one night in the hospital. So it's come a long way in terms of the surgical technique to minimize pain. So you can sew the tendon, repair the rent in the tendon or the tear in the tendon, or sew it back to the bone? Correct. So it depends where the tendon tears. Sometimes it tears uh, in the tendon itself. Usually it's the tendon off the bone, and we can usually repair that arthroscopically with three or four little one-centimeter incisions, or perhaps one incisions about inch and a half, two inches on the top of the shoulder itself. So smaller incisions, less post-operative pain the patient will, will typically have. Outpatient surgery? Outpatient. So most most times in the United States, this is done as an outpatient, or perhaps in some patients, we keep them one night in the hospital for pain control, but it can be done either way. Before we move on to talk about other shoulder issues, mm -hmm. how can you prevent injury to your rotator cuff? It's a great question. I, I think there's no true proven way to prevent that. Again, it's part of the aging process. And Many times it's sustaining injuries. So many of the people that we see are people who fall on the ice in the wintertime, sustain injuries out on the farm. People who have injuries, uh, you add the injuries along with perhaps an aging rotator cuff, that's usually the recipe for getting a full tear. And what's the success rate for rotator cuff surgery, and who is not a candidate? So the success rate is very good. It's probably 85%, 90% of people get a good outcome. I think the recovery takes a while after a repair. Like weeks? It can take weeks or months, or some people say it can take six months to a year to determine your full recovery after a repair. So it takes a long time with physical therapy after the procedure itself. But thankfully, most tears can be fixed surgically that way. The tears that can't be fixed surgically, in the past we had no other treatment option, and perhaps we'll talk a little bit coming up about some newer options we have, such as shoulder replacement for those folks. So there are some that you just can't repair. It's too extensive or tendon too degenerated? or Exactly, Tom. Those are tendons that perhaps have gone on for a long time that have larger tears that are no longer repairable. There are some options now, particularly the reverse shoulder replacement has revolutionized our ability to take care of people who had massive cuff tears or non-repairable tears, and now there's a treatment option to be able to help those people. What about itises? Let's talk about itises. Yes. The list of them uh, that I have has got bursitis and tendonitis at the top of that list. That's incredible. I think it's in the now in the top five or ten most common diagnoses to see your doctor. Cough, upper respiratory tract infection, and also bursitis, rotator cuff tendonitis is in the top ten also. Thankfully, that can be usually treated with those non-operative things that I mentioned, injections, medication, and for the large majority of people, 90, 95%, that will go away with time with those simple treatments. A couple of other things I want to ask you about and the related to injuries to the shoulder, and tell us the difference between a separated shoulder 
and a dislocated shoulder. Yeah, great, great question. So a dislocated shoulder is when the ball slips out of the socket joint completely. That's a true dislocation. A shoulder separation is epidemic here in Minnesota with people slipping on the ice. That's when you separate your clavicle from your acromion bone. That's a shoulder separation. How can it not damage your shoulder to do that? It's interesting. When people fall down, they typically fall on the point of their shoulder, the outside part of their shoulder. And another group, we see it in our hockey players. When they get checked into the boards and they come into their shoulder low, what can happen then is the collarbone, the clavicle bone, separates from the acromial bone, the roof bone, and it pops up that way. So we see that very, very commonly. Again, thankfully, most of those can be treated non-operatively, but boy, they do hurt a lot in the initial period. Yeah, so that's just that right on the top of your shoulder where your collarbone meets the scapula, this portion of your scapula called the acromion, and it's only held together with ligaments. And you hit it on the side and it pops those ligaments. Um, sometimes it's a minor injury, sometimes a major injury. You don't always have to operate on that, though, do you, even if it's a complete tear? That's correct. We've learned over time most of those, thankfully, can be treated non-operatively. But again, incredibly common, falling off a bicycle, slipping on the ice, hockey, things such as that. What's a frozen shoulder? A frozen shoulder is a a shoulder that gets stiff. So another term is adhesive capsulitis. So it's a thickening of the lining of the shoulder itself and an inflammation. can be an incredibly painful problem in that stiffening. We see it more with people who have diabetes or an endocrine disorder, but some people can just develop it for no reason whatsoever. Is it equal to when I have a super stiff neck because I slept wrong and I can't move my neck? Is that the same thing that's happening in a shoulder, a frozen shoulder? It's a great analogy. Very, very similar to that. And the way we try to treat those now are injection, but very gentle physical therapy. I think in the past, we used to treat those very aggressively with therapy to say, well, geez, just fight through the pain. One thing we've learned in the shoulder is more pain does not equal more gain. So very gentle. <laughs> All right, we were talking. We are talking with orthopedic surgeon and shoulder specialist Dr. John Sperling. We've hit the uh, common shoulder problems pretty pretty well. Time for a short break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about arthritis of the shoulder and shoulder joint replacement. He's one of the world's experts. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are talking with orthopedic surgeon, shoulder specialist, Dr. John Sperling. We've been talking about common shoulder problems, and now let's talk about arthritis. Because there are a lot of people with arthritis. Most of them are a little bit more advanced in age. But you've got a solution for it, right, Dr. Sperling? I think we have some very good options for folks now. That's right, Tom. How many people have arthritis specifically in their shoulders? It's actually pretty common, and what had happened in the past, people were probably undertreated for it. Hmm. So actually, the rate of shoulder replacement surgery is growing at three to four times the rate of hip and knee replacements. Really? In the United States. So the rate has really increased, and I think that's due to better technology and uh, easier recovery for our patients now and more recognition that there are good options available out there to help patients. What really happens when you have arthritis of the shoulder? So it's like a tire on the car. You wear all the rubber off the tire, and it becomes metal against the road, and then you start wearing down the rim, you start wearing down the bone. Many people over the course of their lifetime, through hard work or just aging, wear down their shoulder joint, and they develop really debilitating shoulder pain 
Shoulder pain is so difficult because it usually occurs at night and disrupts people's sleep, so it becomes very disabling for patients. So really, you've worn out the, the cartilage that lines the ball and the cartilage that lines the socket. So you got bone rubbing on bone. Exactly. And if your family members had arthritis in the shoulder, are you more prone to have arthritis in the shoulder? Great question. I, I've seen it in some families, perhaps, mm-hmm. where I've operated on three or four different brothers in one family at a younger age. There probably is a genetic component of it that we have not yet discovered. Uh, for most people, it's just wear and tear with age over time. And what can you do about it? Well, the shoulder replacement is probably one of the areas where we've made the most advancements. Because in the past, we heard these horror stories of people being in a sling for months and months at a time, long surgeries. But the shoulder will go I was just going to say, which is why people probably didn't often have surgery for their shoulder. They just kind of learned to deal with the pain. That's exactly right. It's probably one of the reasons that people were hesitant to come to the doctor's sure. office to, for it to be evaluated. Typically now, a shoulder replacement is a one-hour surgery. It's one night in the hospital, an arm in a little soft sling for three to six weeks. All the stitches are absorbable, and uh, most people do all their physical therapy on their own at home with a family member. So it's come a long way in terms of what we used to do in the past. How did you get so good at this? How, how many of these <laughs> have you done? I've probably done about 4,000 or 5,000, so ah, lots, practice, lots. Practice, practice, practice. <laughs> One trick pony, Tom. So, That's it. That's right. You know, there's more and more people that I know that are getting their hips replaced at a much younger age. It makes sense that the same sort of technology can be happening for shoulders, that people don't have to live with that pain anymore. That's exactly right. So I think that the options really are better now, and I think as primary care physicians and other orthopedic surgeons have seen that, better outcomes that patients are more likely to be referred in for treatment for this and uh, able to benefit from some of these treatments. And what's the recovery like? You said it's easier than it used to be. Obviously, the the surgery is is fairly quick, and you're in the hospital one night or totally outpatient? One night, and it's, it's interesting. Most shoulder surgeons would actually tell you that the pain of going through a shoulder replacement is less than a rotator cuff repair. So the therapy is done on your own at home. The stitches are absorbable. And with the shoulder replacement, for a reason we don't quite understand yet, again, the pain is typically less with the replacement than a repair. Many people are off the pain pills within a couple days, some longer, but the recovery is usually very reasonable. We now, Tom, shoulder replacement similar to a hip. It's actually easier to go through a shoulder replacement than a knee replacement now in terms of pain. Now, what do you do in the instance where you not only have the arthritis, so the joint is worn out, but also the rotator cuff is bad? The rotator cuff is torn or or torn off the bone, and so they have limited motion. What do you do in that instance? That's probably now the number one indication for surgery for shoulder replacement, interesting, is a combination of having a rotator cuff tear plus arthritis. And for that one, we now do the reverse shoulder replacement. Reverse? Reverse. You put it in backwards? We, we put it in backwards. We actually put the round ball where the cup used to be, and we put the cup where the ball used to be. And what that allows is the outer muscle on the arm, which you can feel on the outer muscle of your arm. The deltoid muscle, right on the, the side in the top. Okay. To actually elevate your arm. So it's come now there's more reverse shoulder replacements done in the United States than regular ball and socket replacements. No kidding. It's amazing. Yes. More reverse than conventional. More reverse than conventional. And it's because so many people who have arthritis of their shoulder also have rotator cuff disease. Is that the reason? It's the primary reason, plus it's expanded the indication. So we do reverse shoulder replacements for fractures, bad fractures around the shoulder. We actually do reverse shoulder replacements for people who have no arthritis. Their shoulders are not worn out, but they have a massive rotator cuff tear that can't be fixed. 
So it's the first replacement of a joint where you're actually not the indication or the reason to do it is not the arthritis, but it's the rotator cuff tear or a soft tissue problem. Very interesting. No kidding. Well, who figured out how to do this backwards? It was actually a French surgeon about 30 years ago had this crazy idea to go ahead and to reverse the ball and socket joint. And at first he was ridiculed for the idea. And then over time, we've really recognized the brilliance that this French surgeon had and now is really spread throughout the world. How much does a shoulder replacement surgery cost? I mean, I know it varies around the country, but in general, and it's paid for by Medicare if you're over age 65, is that correct? Correct. I would say my own personal practice is largely people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. So my practice is the majority of people I take care of, I think the average age is mid-70s. So the, the cost is probably equivalent to a hip or knee replacement. Well, and as the population ages and people want to stay active, because they want to stay active, don't they? Yes. <laughs> they do. Yes. Uh, so I would imagine that this... You'll, you'll find out pretty soon. <laughs> That's what I know. <laughs> I would imagine that this is um, something that people take pretty seriously. But I am thinking right now, if my shoulders are good, everything's fine. How can you keep your shoulders healthy? Are there any preventative types of things you can do? Another great question. There's nothing proven to prevent arthritis of the joint. So there is no proven. But I think what we do see are people who really bounce back quicker from the surgery are in overall better health. So maintaining a good health, maintaining the flexibility of your joints and strength, all those things help people in the post-operative recovery period. Does your rotator cuff ever wear out uh, without a history of some kind of significant injury? It can. We see that actually quite frequently, Tom, where people can never recall a specific injury that happened, but just over time they've noticed a gradual increase in an aching pain in their shoulder region. And then many people are frankly just very tough, have lived with this for a while and haven't realized it, and they finally come to the doctor's office and their rotator cuff is really severely torn. And do you have arthritis in both shoulders then, or can you develop it in just one? The majority of people that I see do have it in both shoulders. Mm -hmm. Are you doing more women than men, or is it pretty much equal? It's actually more women than men. My practice is is the majority women. Uh, I think it's just based on life expectancy. Oh, they're living longer. They're living longer. So the average patient who actually I take care of is usually a woman who lives alone at home. So the shoulder replacement, one of the nice things is it really helps them maintain their independence. All right. Everything you wanted to know about shoulder replacement surgery from one of the world's experts, orthopedic surgeon, Dr. John Sperling. Dr. Sperling, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for allowing me to be here. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll discuss treatment and prevention of osteoporosis. And later on in the show, what to do about cellulite. Do you have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicnewsnetwork at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Researchers at Mayo Clinic have identified an important new pathway by which HER2-positive breast cancers grow and have discovered that a dietary supplement called cyclocreatine may block the growth of HER2-positive breast cancer. Their findings were published in Cell Metabolism. The study authors say a receptor, which functions as an on or off switch in cellular functions, is a key driver of breast cancer. Certain drugs help 
help to fight this issue, but some tumors are or may become resistant to them. So the researchers decided to explore ways to resolve the unmet clinical need. Their strategy was to develop a treatment to target a type of tumor metabolism, which is the process cancer cells use in order to grow. They discovered that cyclocreatine, a dietary supplement used in sports drinks, effectively targets the process and reduces cancer growth without toxicity. They say the research may open the potential for a new drug target for the treatment of HER2-positive breast cancer. More research is needed to determine the effectiveness of this drug for HER2-positive breast cancer resistant to standard therapies. And in other news, let's talk about foods that keep you full. Satiety is a fancy word for a pretty simple and important concept. Satiety is basically how full a food makes you feel and for how long. So focusing on satiety can have a big effect on your health and your weight. Now, your body processes different foods in different ways. More specifically, your body processes different foods at different speeds, and that affects how long you stay full. Dr. Donald Hendrude says proteins and fats are processed slower than carbs. Foods that are processed slower, like proteins and fats, can give you more satiety. He says when you fill up on foods that provide greater satiety, you're less likely to overindulge on less healthy foods that may cause you to gain weight or provide less nutrition. He says that's why when we're hungry, a little bit of nuts with protein and fat can go a long way. Other high-protein and high-fat foods that provide satiety include lean meats like chicken, fatty fish like salmon, eggs, yogurt, broccoli, olive oil, avocados, and dark chocolate if you need something sweet. So when you're planning for snacks and meals, think about satiety and what's going to make you feel full longer. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our bones, they're living tissue that is constantly being broken down and replaced. Now, when we don't make as much bone as we lose, the condition is called osteoporosis, literally porous bones. And that tends to happen as we age, as all of us age, but it is much more common in women than in men. Yes, osteoporosis <laughs> causes bones to become weak and brittle, so brittle that a fall or even mild stresses such as bending over or coughing can cause a fracture. The good news is osteoporosis or brittle bone disease can be effectively managed or even prevented. I'm all ears. That's the good news. Here to discuss osteoporosis is Mayo Clinic endocrinologist, Dr. Bart Clark. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Clark. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Dr. Clark, always good to have you on the program. So as we get older, our, our bones tend to become porous, they become weak, they become brittle. Correct. And so this process starts in most of us in our mid-50s and then progresses as we get older unless we do something to prevent it. You're not even there yet. Just, I'm on my way. <laughs> why women, why do women suffer from this more than men? Right. The view currently is that it's the mainly the estrogen deficiency that develops at menopause that causes bone loss, at least for a period of time, perhaps 10 or 15 years after menopause. And at the end of menopause, of course, bones are much thinner than they were before menopause. In men, men don't lose testosterone quite the same as women lose estrogen in most cases, and so they're relatively protected against severe bone loss. So it's estrogen that's the culprit? At least at the beginning. Oh. Now, the, the view is changing on this, and there's recognition that there's many other factors that are aging-related that take over perhaps probably 65 to 70, and it continues to be estrogen deficiency, but there's other factors that are added in to accelerate the loss. 
Are there other risk factors other than being female? Yes. So there's a number of diseases that will accelerate bone loss because of the nature of the disease. So we're thinking about things like type 2 diabetes mellitus. We're thinking about things like hyperthyroidism, hyperparathyroidism. Overactive parathyroids, overactive thyroid. Exactly. And there's a number of other things as well. If you have a low calcium diet, a low sodium diet, um, I, I should say high sodium diet, or um, a low vitamin D intake, or you're not physically active, all of these things accelerate bone loss. Symptoms? Um, unfortunately, isn't it true that sometimes uh, it's asymptomatic until something bad happens? Yes. This is one of the silent diseases that you wouldn't know you had it until you break a bone or you get your bone density checked to find out. But most people who have osteoporosis don't know they have it because they haven't fallen and broken something yet or they haven't been tested. So are we talking that screening needs to be done? Is that what we should be doing? Yes. So national guidelines exist for who should be screened. If you've never had a fracture, the recommendation currently by most national organizations is age 65 for women and age 70 for men. So even though men aren't nearly as likely to get the disease, they should be screened. Yeah. There's guidelines that would recommend that. Age 70. Age 70. And 65 for women. And it's called a bone density scan. Why are you yes. laughing? I just said <laughs> uh, it was. we're, we're making sure we're of the ages. That's all I'm yeah, saying. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so then why is it that, you know, when I'm going into menopause, I should be worrying about my bone health? Well, because the, the natural consequence of estrogen loss, stopping making estrogen on your own, is that, yes, you get hot flashes, you may have mood swings, you may have other symptoms, but... As a consequence of the estrogen deficiency, bones will start diminishing or decreasing over time. It feels like I shouldn't wait until 65 then. Well, there's good evidence to think that if you have risk factors before age 65, it would be reasonable to check your bone density around the time of menopause. Okay. And if you check some, um, someone's bone density and you notice that they have uh, osteoporosis or early osteoporosis called osteopenia, what do you do? So once that condition is recognized, then the question is, is it severe enough to intervene with medication? Uh, most of these people would normally be recommended to optimize calcium and vitamin D intake, physical activity if they haven't already, and then depending on the severity, make a decision about whether medication is actually required. Can you prevent the bone loss? Yes. So all the medications used to treat osteoporosis, if you took them earlier in life, would prevent it. Now, the question is, is the risk of fracture high enough to make us recommend the therapies because they all have risk, they all have expense, and there's the benefit to be had, but that's always couched in terms of how bad the risk is. Now, suggesting that uh, people take calcium and vitamin D, uh, that suggests that we don't get enough calcium in our diet, or a lot of people don't. Yeah. In general, most Americans would have about half the intake of calcium through their diet that is recommended for their age. And this is particularly true of people as they get older. So most women past age 50, the recommendation currently is 1,200 milligrams of elemental calcium a day. Most of us in our diets, based on national dietary surveys, get about half that. For men, it's about the same. When you recommend calcium, there's so many different kinds. How do you know what kind to take, and why do you need the vitamin D? Yeah, so vitamin D is needed to help absorb the calcium and phosphorus, it turns out, too, because phosphorus is also involved in the bones. For calcium intake, you can modify your diet. It's more palatable and nutritionally better probably to do that. But if you can't or don't want to, then you can take a supplement. And then among the supplements, calcium carbonate is by far and away the most common. 
It's easily absorbed, convenient, one tablet per day, usually a five or 600 milligrams is sufficient. If you don't absorb things well or if you don't have very much stomach acid, we usually recommend calcium citrate, and that absorbs better. And if dairy doesn't work for you, there's other other foods that have calcium in them. What are some of those? Yeah, very much so. So green vegetables, many of them have reasonable calcium intake, but things like broccoli, uh, spinach, Brussels sprouts, and kale are all high-calcium foods. There's a number of cereals and breads that are supplemented and fruit juices that are supplemented with calcium. You can buy almond milk that's calcium supplemented now. So there's a number of other foods that if you can't take dairy, your dairy, uh, you're lactose intolerant, you still can get the calcium through your diet without actually having to take a supplement. Can you rebuild your bone density? Yeah, if calcium and vitamin D aren't enough, you've got some pretty powerful medications, don't you? Yeah, so the issue is, you know, when we look at a skeleton in the doctor's office, it looks like rock, and we assume that the skeleton, the bones are non-changing. But in the living person, the bones are very much like every other living tissue. We can lose bone density, but we can gain it as well as long as circumstances are right. So by giving adequate calcium and vitamin D intake or supplementation in conjunction with medication, the medications will build bone density, strengthen the bones, and markedly reduce the risk of fracture in the future. Hold on. Is strength training good for good <laughs> bone? Because producer Jen and I are in a power woman strength training class, and we want to know that we're doing it for a good reason. Yes. So power training would be excellent for bones. Anything that puts stress or strain on bones is good. Now, the question is, how weak are the bones to begin with? And if they're weak enough, you have to be careful how much you lift, how much you do. But in general, uh, strength training is good for bones, as is walking, by the way. Hey. Well, there you go. Any weight-bearing exercise. Swimming, not so much, not so good. It, it's good for the aerobic capacity, as is bicycling, and the stress and strain on the bones is a bit less because of the buoyant effect of the water or because you're bearing weight on your hips, not so much your feet. So when you, after you do the bone density test, then you can recommend a regimen. And it might just be calcium and vitamin D, but if the problem is worse, then you've got some prescription medications that can actually build bone. Yeah. So there are eight or nine currently approved medications out there with a range of strengths. Some are less potent, others are more potent. There's a range of uh, side effects and cost attached, and so those are the discussions you should have with your primary care physician to see what's recommended. You had mentioned when we were talking about risk factors, is there hereditary? Yes. So it turns out your bone density measured, about 60 to 80 percent of that comes from genetic inheritance. The other 30 to 40 percent comes from things that happen during our lifetimes, medications we take, diseases we acquire, things we do or don't do that would affect bones. All right, we'll keep up the exercise. Sounds like it's the right thing to do. So stiff and sore today. Today's not the day to have that discussion. (laughs) All right, we've been talking about osteoporosis treatment and prevention with Mayo endocrinologist Dr. Bart Clark. Dr. Clark, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll find out what can be done about, can you believe it, cellulite. (laughs) You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Cellulite is a term used to describe lumpy, dimpled flesh, usually on the thighs, buttocks, and abdomen. Now, it's sometimes described as having a cottage cheese or an orange peel texture. Although it's not a serious medical condition, it's not considered particularly attractive. And I suspect that most people who have it wish they didn't, and they probably like to get rid of it. Maybe some people just ignore that it's there. (laughs) Many cellulite treatments advertise remarkable results, but don't live up to their claims. So what can be done about cellulite? Here to discuss is Mayo Clinic dermatologist, Dr. Don Davis. Welcome back to the program. 
Thanks, Tom and Tracy. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, I was thinking about this program, and you, of course, and uh, I thought, cellulite, where in the world did that word ever come from? So I actually looked it up. Wait, first we need to find book. out, do yeah. you know where it came from? No, I don't. Well, but now make, I'll know. It, it doesn't make any sense. It came from the French word cellule, meaning small cell. C-E-L-L-U-L-E, meaning small cell. It, don't, it doesn't make any sense to me. But anyway, Does that make sense to you? No. In fact, a lot of cellulite is not small. So Big cell. What causes it? So cellulite is a natural aging process. Essentially, we have fibrous stroma within our skin below the dead skin cell surfaces that we see that we shed. We have fibrous tissue that keeps our skin supported and keeps it attached to the muscles and fascia below. And with time, that stroma tissue breaks down and it's not replaced. And so the fat that you accumulate with obesity or gaining weight plus a little bit of the normal fat that's there as an insulation to help us keep our heat, will herniate or project through that stromal tissue because now it's getting holes in it, and that is the appearance that you see a cellulite, which is why it looks so uneven. My question to you, Dr. Shives, is why did you want to talk about this? Well, because I saw a story about it, and because if you watch TV and the advertisements, it looks like it's pretty easy to get rid of, but I didn't believe it. <laughs> is that true? Well, it's a very common problem. Approximately 80 to 90% of adult women have cellulite, and probably almost as many men, and it's becoming... Um, more favorable in the cosmetic industry to talk about it. It used to be a subject that we just kind of hid, and now people want to get rid of it and do something about it. So it's nice that patients feel empowered to try to improve something about their health and wellness that they dislike. So that's good. So we're talking more about cellulite, and there are a few basic things that you can do to help its appearance. And before we do that, I, I want to ask you about the cellulite severity scale. See, I did my research for this I'm program. I'm so impressed, Tom. And there's I'm a, a little suspicious. They can grade it, grade one, grade two, grade three. And if you have grade one, you look like an orange peel. Your skin does. Grade two is cottage cheese. And grade three is it looks like a mattress. Excellent. Do you like it? Well, that's a very <laughs> non-scientific, subjective scale. I'll be sure not to use that with my patients. Oh. You could just say it's mild, moderate, or severe. That sounds better. <laughs> well, what do we do about cellulite? So if we remember why cellulite occurs, then it's easier to address the problems. So um, being of a healthy weight is very important because if you have a more generous body mass index or obesity level, then there's simply more fat cells to herniate through the fibrous tissue that then would make this, the cellulite be more moderate or severe instead of mild. So, so she's may, using my scale already. I'm already using the scale. I'm a quick learner. <laughs> so it's important to maintain a healthy weight because adiposity or obesity definitely ex- accelerates cellulite. The other thing is, is that just having more weight puts more pressure on the skin to make it want to herniate through. So being of healthy weight is important. The other thing is, is that if you remember that it's more of a loosening through um, a wicker basket or through uh, holes, if you will, just maintaining good muscular tone around your abdomen, buttocks, and thighs, so that way the supportive tissue around your skin is firmer. That also will help give it lift, which will make the cellulite not as um, forced through to make it less appearance. So, so exercise, exercise and losing weight. And losing weight, which <laughs> nobody wants to hear, but that's the truth. It's not an easy thing, but it's doable. And then, of course, you can always pursue 
liposuction if you would like, because that will physically remove not only the fat cells, but the surrounding stroma. That is not a walk in the park, though. It is definitely not a walk in the park, and it's not for everyone, and it's not a cure-all. We can't liposuction away every single little piece that you don't like. You can't take somebody who has a very generous BMI and simply use liposuction as a technique to take away all of their adipose. But BMI, body mass index, meaning Correct. pretty heavy. Correct. One other thing, a risk factor I wanted to ask you about smoking. Are, are you more likely to have cellulite if you smoke? I would say yes. I'm not sure that's ever been proven in the literature, but as you can tell, with, um, a lot of people who smoke get smoker's skin. Their skin tends to be discolored wrinkly. We know that the components in cigarettes and uh, smokeless tobacco degrade the fibrostroma of the skin. And so the quicker it is degraded, for example, by cigarette smoking, the more holes it would have. And the more holes it has, the easier it is for the fat to come through and be cellulite. The only thing, though, cellulite just is we don't like it. There's Is there health ramifications to having cellulite? I mean, certainly if you're not exercising and you're overweight, there's health ramifications there, but cellulite's not going to kill you, is it? No, cellulite in and of itself is not dangerous. It's simply a cosmetic bother. Um, it is unhealthy to be of a, an unhealthy weight, and we don't want people to do things that are controversial in medicine to try to get rid of their cellulite because we do see unhealthy consequences of that. So you talked about liposuction as a fairly definitive uh, treatment, not perfect, but uh, what about everything else that we see or read that's advertised, a lot of creams, them, sure. wraps, et cetera? Do any of them work? So I don't think there's any cream marketed on the market by prescription or over-the-counter that works to get rid of cellulite. I don't think that any of those vibrating machines that mechanically break down things, so to speak, in the in the skin, I don't think that that would be very helpful. In fact, I worry that it perhaps could make it worse by mechanically breaking down the stroma. Those bands that you can wear, they can be very constrictive. They don't really help help. And we worry that that would strangulate the tissue and make things worse. So um, if it's if it's too good to be true, it probably is. There's no magic wand for cellulite. Is there anything on the horizon? We are looking at thermal techniques to either cool the area or perhaps heat the area to maybe cause an inflammatory reaction that's very mild below the skin to then let the immune system take away some of that tissue. We use lasers and lights sources that are similar to lasers to um, treat other skin diseases. And so it would be a natural progression that we would look at treating cellulite in this way. You know what? You figure that out and you will not need us anymore to become famous. <laughs> We've been talking about cellulite and what you can and can't do about it with dermatologist Dr. Don Davis. Thanks for being here, Dr. Davis. My pleasure. That's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio, or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at newsnetwork.mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. 
Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.